Hi, this is Lindsay from the Year of Polygamy podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, I would just like to remind you that this podcast is meant to go in order. So start all the way back at episode one and work your way through if possible. The podcast is meant to tell a story and you get a lot more context when you listen from the beginning. We hope that you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, you can make a donation at yearofpolygamy.com. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I'm interviewing a good friend of mine who, you know what, I, I keep doing this. I keep saying like, it's the most interesting, unique story you've ever heard. And then I find someone with who's even more unique and more interesting. Uh, Tom Bennett, you are one of those people who has a very, very interesting story. And I don't want to say it's the most interesting story I've ever heard because who knows? Who knows what the future brings? But you definitely have a very interesting story. Can you say hello? Hi. It's nice to be on here with you. I listen to the podcast, so I know what you mean. You do have a lot of interesting people on, and the stories are all fascinating. But I'm glad to be on. I think your story is going to be interesting for people because you're not really Mormon. You're not really Mormon fundamentalist. You're not really polygamous. But you're also all of those things. So... Let's, I, I'm not quite sure how, if you were to give us like a one sentence byline, what would you say about yourself? Well, you know, when we were at the Sunstone at Warren Jeff's house, uh, you called on me to introduce myself. And I just kind of said that I am a, a Baptist, Mormon, Mormon fundamentalist, Buddhist, Satanist, occultist. Um. Well, there you go. There you go. And you... First of all, before we're going to get into your whole story in just a minute, but people might know you as Tom Bennett, the one man band. You want to explain that for a minute? Yeah. For the last about four years, I've been traveling the country uh, nonstop uh, performing Americana music as a one man band. So I play uh, a dobro guitar with a slide, harmonica, foot percussion, sing and tell stories for a living. Well, let's let's get into that. Why don't you walk us through it? Let's start at the very beginning when Tom Bennett was born. Where were you born? <laughs> That's actually where I started what I wrote down to tell you. So uh, uh, my name again is Tom Bennett, and I was, uh, I was born in the heart of Atlanta, Georgia, and raised in the rural Piedmont region of North Georgia. My family has a very beautiful farm to the east uh, – sorry, to the west of Atlanta – and I spent a lot of my time there. Uh, I was an only child, and um, I had a lot of time to explore the countryside and kind of roam wild as a youth and uh, was trusted to take care of myself and had a lot of beautiful experiences with nature as a child. One of my favorite things to do when I was young, I found this big hollowed-out oak tree, and I would go out there and uh, – stripped down naked and paint myself blue with various berries I'd found and roam the hills with my eight dogs and my shotgun. So I kind of, kind of lived a, some people have kind of described it as a Huck Finn kind of life as a kid. That's a great way to describe you, especially knowing you, you are sort of a modern day Huck Finn. Talk to me about your family though. Tell us about them. <laughs> um, my family are, uh, are longtime Southerners. Um, they, uh, 
They've been out there for hundreds of years. My grandfather, who's still alive and still very active, is in his mid-80s. And uh, he likes to tell people that he had family that came over on one of the earliest ships way back in the day. We don't have as much family history in our culture or knowledge of it as most LDS families do. And I've only started to recently learn some of the stories of where I came from. My grandmother told me uh, a story about four years ago when I first started playing guitar about a photograph on her wall that I was always very interested in. Uh, it turns out that I come from a lineage of uh, folk singers. My great-grandfather, Roy Ferguson, was a country singer in Georgia, and he passed away in 1973 in the parking lot of a hotel that he was performing at. His great-grandfather was also a, a country fiddle player, I think it was, and uh, on the uh, on the side of women in our family, my grandmother told me a story about various women including one of my aunts who was born with what they call the veil. And the veil was literally, to the best I can tell, these women, these girls were born in the family with a part of the placenta covering their face. And I've read a little bit about it. I can't remember the medical terminology, but it's a relatively rare genetic occurrence. And my grandmother told me that the girls born with the veil could see the future. And, uh, there were a lot of women throughout our family line who had the veil. So you grew up with sort of this like mystic, southern, rural, wild childhood. And I'm sure people are listening. Great. That's really interesting. But what does this have to do with Mormonism? And we'll get there. I want everyone to wait. But I think the background of why you are so different makes it an interesting story. And in very many ways is very similar to, I think, early Mormon conversion stories, right? Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, we'll get into later about how I first heard of Joseph Smith, but, you know, they believed in that folk magic. And I I was kind of, I wouldn't say I was raised with that, but it was around, as well as primitive forms of the Baptist religion. You know, for example, like my earliest religious experience, I wouldn't say spiritual experiences necessarily, because I had those on my own as well. But my earliest religious experiences were found as a teenager at the Cali Harbin Missionary Baptist Church in Villa Rica, Georgia. The preacher there was this tall man who was, uh, I would say, equally a student of Johnny Cash as he was the Bible. I remember him being a tall man who dressed in black. He had long white sideburns and a pompadour haircut, and he would preach with the rough Southern Baptist bark. Have you ever heard that before? Uh, no, I have not, actually. So, for example, in the primitive Southern Baptist churches throughout the countryside, um, I don't know why it is. It's a cultural thing. But the preachers, they, they preach like this. I'll give you an example. We are gathered here today yeah, to worship the Lord, duh, my brothers and sisters. Ah. That's the way they speak. I don't <laughs> so know why exciting. it is. exciting. I like it. It keeps your attention. <laughs> uh, and they're very, very lively. They carry white rags that they wipe their faces with, and they jump up and down a lot, and they're very energetic. So as a teenager, I started to attend those churches because that was that was what was prominent in the area. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So religion becomes an early influence for you. Of course, mm -hmm. it sort of permeates the South. Did you know about Mormonism? No, I never heard of it at all until I was uh, until I was 15 years old. I'd never never heard anything of it. All I knew 
at that point in my life about any religion at all was the Baptist church and the uh, Pentecostals. That was all I knew about religion. So do we want to talk about when you're 15 or do we want to talk about music and your grandfather? Um, well, I think we're here more to talk about the spiritual aspects of, of how this all came about. So we can just roll on into how I, how I came to hear about Mormonism um, and how I, how I became curious about spirituality at all. You know, I didn't have any desire to learn about religion. It wasn't anything that really was in my life until I started attending this Baptist church. And it was a really unique experience. I told you about the preacher and the way he was. He was also very quick to anoint with oil. Uh, this particular group of Southern Baptists, they they were really fond of the gifts of the Spirit. Um, I remember one time a, a young girl got very sick, and he just called her to come down the alt- to the altar, and he anointed her with oil and very enthusiastically blessed her and demanded that she be healed in the name of Jesus, you know, where the congregation would rise to their feet and sway and just speak out. Uh, I wouldn't say in tongues, but, you know, in the Baptist church, you hear a lot of, oh, yes, Jesus, yes, Lord, healer, Lord, healer, you know, just kind of invoking the spirit, I guess you could say. And this was all really fascinating as a 15-year-old kid. And of course, uh, you know, being around that, it's very easy to to feel, uh, you know, just something something magical and spiritual taking place because people's faith is so strong. And it's very, uh, you know, these are old traditions, and it was a really cool thing to experience. Um, where things began to change for me was um, each of these services would end with these beautiful choirs singing. You know, they had the real thick, rich Southern accents. They'd sing with their hands up in the air. They were very zealous and passionate. And uh, I still remember some of the beautiful music I heard. And music always resonated with me. So this would get me really, really feeling it. Um, Now, while the choir was singing at the end of these services, the preacher would do what is commonly called an altar call. He would ask everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes. And then he would begin to say, brothers and sisters, there might be some here among us who who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and who don't know that if they were to die right now, where they would find their soul. He says, I want to ask you with your eyes closed, your head bowed. Is there anyone here today that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there anyone here today that does not know that if you were to die right now, that you would go to heaven? If this is you raise your hand. Wow. Now I became very, and this is a common thing in the South. This is, you know, this is the most common method of conversion for Southern Baptist. Um, at least in what I experienced, this was a common thing in the various churches I visited. And it's very powerful because right there you're in the heat of this moment and you think about it and you don't know that because you, you know, you're not familiar with this whole way of thinking. I wasn't raised Christian. And so, uh, at one of these services, I became very, uh, very emotional and uh, very what I thought at the time, and maybe it was, filled with the Spirit. And I found myself raising my hand, and I went up there to the altar, and I kneeled with this old minister, this old reverend, and uh, he held my hands, and he placed his hand on my shoulder, and he says, pray this with me. And uh, he would say a prayer, and I would recite it. And basically, I was accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And when this was concluded, 
I stood up and the whole place erupted into cheers and dancing and, and everybody was, you know, thankful because now they knew I would go to heaven when I died. That and just it's sounds exciting. That. It just sounds exciting and lovely and joyful. It was a beautiful, beautiful experience. And, uh, it transformed my life. It was such a, a great thing to experience. And, uh, According to the teachings of the Baptist Church, I was now saved. Uh, you know, there would be no losing this salvation because I had accepted the Lord as my Savior. Now, I could choose to be baptized, but that's really not in their faith essential. Um, just the accepting of the Lord with all your heart, that's it. You're definitely going to heaven when you die. Repentance and all those things are taught, but they're not necessary. You're saved by grace, not by works, is what was taught. Now, the thing that became interesting with me was, um, you know, I'm 15 years old. I'm brand new to it. I had not very much studied the Bible or any other religious texts. And I was moved by emotion to join the Baptist church and be saved. But um, it wasn't long after that that I realized that this would only be the beginning for me and my, my uh, spiritual journey because – Within short a short time, the feeling that I had of being saved, that being imbued with the Spirit, it kind of faded away, and I was left with the question of what now. Um, didn't mean I was done with the Baptist Church. It just made me wonder, you know, how do I regain this 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 spiritual high, this feeling, and how do I move forward in my journey? Um, so that's kind of a point I got to. Interesting. Okay, so what happens next after about being a Baptist? Do you well, things got really interesting around that time because most of my teenage friends were also Baptist. Some of the uh, some of the other teenagers from the surrounding farms uh, around this time, fifteen years old, sixteen years old, they they started getting involved in mind altering substances. Um, and I did as well. So we began uh, heavily smoking marijuana and using LSD. Um, we would also uh, huff gas, basically just experiment with a variety of drugs. And this experimentation with these mind-altering substances mixed with the religious zeal we were kind of having made for some very interesting manifestations. And some things happened at that time that – prepared my mind for receiving Mormonism later. One of these experiences, I, uh, I, was, uh, I was getting high, I was using drugs, and uh, I was at my family farm, and I remember standing up and walking towards one of the hay fields, and I kind of collapsed onto my knees, and it was a beautiful spring day, and I looked up into the sky and I remember seeing the sky kind of turn red and a bunch of clouds began to gather. And I felt like I was thrust out of my body. And there was a, a rushing wind kind of sound. And suddenly I found myself in a very small, um, kind of like a jail cell. And, and an immeasurable amount of time seemed to go by, something I can never describe, maybe thousands of years. I've never experienced anything like that really again. And I remember 
at some point it started to fade away and I could see the sky again, but the sky was filled with, um, what looked like kind of like skeletons. And it was a very shocking experience to me because I felt that what had happened was that I had visited hell. Okay, so it's sort of like this biblical reenactment, you know, Moses on the Mount having these visions. So at this time, how are you contextualizing this? Um, the, only con- the only context that I had to go from was a, bib- a biblical context, and it felt like and seemed like, you know, a visit to hell is all I could describe it as. So the whole thing was very ominous and very dark. Um, and I had never experienced anything like that before. I'm not a person who, you know, any time in my life previous to that had seen any kind of vision. Now, it's it's true that I said at the time I was on drugs. And a lot of people, I think, will disregard the vision because of that. And that's fine if they choose to do that. But the thing is, is whether it happened externally or in my mind, it still impacted me. It's well, still and let's provi- just point out, and we haven't talked about this yet, but we will talk about this on the podcast. There is academic research and scholarship speculating that Joseph Smith and some of his companions did experiment with substances, did spike the wine in Kirtland, and ex- you know that sort of explains some of these great visions that were happening in mass in Kirtland. And so we'll talk about that later. So I wouldn't say that Mormons should immediately dismiss that. That information might make some people uncomfortable, but it's certainly out there. And there is some historical claims to argue a good case for it. So I would just ask people to keep an open mind. And as, you know, science developing, there was just an academic conference in California, full-on academic conference on psychedelics and neuroscience and spirituality and all of those things combining. So... Um, I understand that people might dismiss it, but there's actually some precedent for it. Absolutely. And it's good to hear that amongst Mormonism. Also, there's various ancient cultures um, from all around the world that have used different substances to act as doorways into the perception and into the mind. So, you know, while not saying I would recommend it, I don't currently use drugs. I did go through a long period of my life where I did, and I don't regret it. I learned a variety of things, which I'll touch on, but this was the first time I had ever experienced something that I would describe as paranormal or holy or um, transcendental. It was vastly different from your everyday reality, and it definitely caused me to step away from it with a very strong desire to, to search the scriptures and to learn what might be the truth and to search my own mind. And um, at that point, I got a hold of a King James Bible and I began to read it from the very beginning because I hadn't read it. And I honestly didn't know many people who had in its entirety, definitely not at that young age of 15 years old. So I uh, continued to search the scriptures and I read and um, I also continued with uh, LSD and meditation Um and I went on like that for a while. Um, it was during that 15th year that at some point I felt impressed. And when I say impressed, I don't mean I heard a voice. I didn't see another vision. It was just a feeling, you know, just kind of like how people talk about the promptings of the Holy Ghost. 
um, I felt impressed to build my own church. And I don't mean that in the sense of seeking followers or anything like that, because it wasn't that way at all. And I still attended my local church on occasion, but I felt like there was this place on the family farm. Um, it's a very beautiful place where I lived. It's a mixture of hay fields, uh, oak forest, pine forest. It's, uh, it was a very uh, ideal childhood to grow up there. Um, there was a creek that flowed through it slowly called Sweetwater Creek. And at one bend of Sweetwater Creek, there was a, uh, a granite outcropping kind of like a bubble of granite rock that just came out of, out of the ground. And it was very different from all the land around it. And I had a strong feeling um, that this place had been holy to the Native Americans. The area I lived in was inherited or was inhabited by the Cherokee Indians. And before that, for many, many centuries, um, was inhabited by the Creek. And, uh, which is another Native American tribe. And it wasn't uncommon anytime it rained for you to just find loads and loads of arrowheads upon the ground. There was also uh, old rusty whiskey sills, uh, stills, and the names of lovers carved in the trees. It was just a place that was just filled with history. You could feel it as you walked through there. So what I did was I gathered a bunch of uh, stones from the creek and I put them in a circle at the top of this granite outcropping, and I would go there to meditate and pray. And so that's how I built my own little church, my own little sanctuary. Or your and, own little sacred grove, if you will. Yeah, my little sacred grove. One time I did go there. Uh, I rode a dirt bike around the farm a lot, which was you know really loud. And one time I parked at the base of the hill and uh, walked up the granite outcropping, and there was a young deer standing in the middle of my little chapel. And it walked. I walked right up to it and reached my hand out, and just before I touched it, it, it ran away. It was a very neat experience. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it was a, it was a beautiful place. And, uh, you know, if anybody – I wish everybody listening could see it because it's just – it was perfect. And um, I would go there and just ponder and meditate and read the Bible and um, – and I did that for a long time. So around the time I was at this point, a lot of my friends that were also Baptist and uh, also doing drugs, they left the area that I lived in to join with a group that was commonly known as the garbage eaters. Have you ever heard of them before? No, I've never heard that term before. So the garbage eaters formerly known is formerly known as the Jim Roberts group. Um, they're commonly recognized as a cult and you can find information on them about the internet. They teach that wealth is evil. You know, the whole rich man cannot inherit the kingdom of God. They also use the scriptures that say anyone who will not leave their father and mother to come find the Lord is not worthy of the kingdom. Uh, they're very big into forsaking, uh, relationships, property and wealth. And, their followers grow long beards and they wear these kind of tunic like shirts and uh, they're very patriarchal. The women are not allowed to speak unless they're spoken to and they kind of roam around homeless and teach that people need to accept Jesus Christ or be damned. So, and they're very, very knowledgeable scriptorians. So a lot of my young friends became converted to this group and left. It was kind of common at that time 
for a lot of religious discussion to take place at a lot of the parties that we went to. So it wasn't uncommon for a bunch of teenagers to get in a hayfield and everyone to take LSD and then talk about religion. I remember arriving at one of these parties and everyone, probably about 50 or 60 teenagers, were in a huge frenzy. And they were all telling me that just before I arrived, an angel had visited them. Interesting. I mean, it's so foreign from my religious experience, which was, you know, we got together and we played soccer and we didn't drink, you know, we drank root beer, homemade root beer or something. But you hadn't I moved on to Diet Coke yet at that time. I, I hadn't moved on to Diet Coke. Not yet. I didn't, I didn't graduate. <laughs> but yeah, it seems like this. I mean, it's just a culture that is so foreign to me, but it's fascinating, too. And it obviously shaped it shaped your experience. And I never heard of the garbage eaters, but we'll make sure we link to them. Mm -hmm. Jim Roberts group is the formal name. I'm sure they're still out there. There's a website. I looked at it recently as I was preparing my thoughts for this conversation. And there's a website of parents trying to find their kids. Interesting. So they're still out there living, proselytizing, sort of this uh -huh. hippie Christian cult. Yeah. Now, That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Are they are they conservative politically? How do they feel about homosexuality and, and things like that that maybe other liberal groups, hippie groups would accept? I don't know, to be completely honest with you. It would be an assumption for me to say anything about that. But I did know that they were extremely biblical and like many Southern Christians were very particular about the context and the exact language of the scriptures. So I imagine that they were quite conservative. Okay, so what happens from there? Uh, so a lot of my friends became part of this group, and I ran into them a couple times at, at parties and things, and we would debate the scriptures. And by this point, I was becoming relatively knowledgeable, but I wasn't converted quite to their way of thinking. So I didn't, I didn't join the group like they did. And some of my other friends didn't as well, but quite a few did. And um, it did, though, uh, cause me to dive even deeper into my searching of the scriptures. You know, at this point, I had reached into the New Testament in my studies, and I kind of got to a point where I was thinking that it didn't seem that there were any churches that really taught the Bible, because there was a lot more to it than just believing and being saved. Uh, and I was seeing the scriptures like my friends were that said it was harder for a rich man to get to heaven than to get a camel through the eye of the needle. And I saw a lot of rich Christians. I just saw a lot of dichotomy that caused me to think that where I was and what I was believing was definitely not the entirety. You know, I also read about all these various angels that would appear and these gifts of the spirit. And I would see a little bit of that in the churches, but I don't know. It wasn't quite wasn't quite appeasing my quest for knowledge at that point. And that's, that brought me to a point of something I want to tell your listeners, but I almost didn't because I know that speaking about it before kind of got me in a little bit of trouble. But at this point, I haven't been a member of the LDS church or any other church for a very long time. So there's really no one that can come after me and threaten anything or hold anything above my head. So I'll just tell you. Now, before I go into this, I'll have to say that it left me very confused, this experience, and very, very startled and frightened. Um, when I was 16, a couple of friends and I 
had gathered at another friend's house and we were sitting on the front porch overlooking a large hay field and it was uh it was pretty late in the summer if i remember correctly and we were discussing the bible and some of the things that we'd studied and it was um it was kind of cloudy out and the sun was going down and i remember some point during our conversation it was as if I had shifted. It's kind of hard to describe it. I had entered into another state of mind. Now, we weren't using any drugs or anything at that particular time, um, but it almost had the feeling of just the whole atmosphere and the whole environment changed. The whole feeling became very electrified. And I remember being compelled to rise to my feet and just simply walking away from the conversation into the hayfield in front of the house. And as I began to walk into this hayfield, I was looking up into the sky and the wind began to blow. And all of the clouds that were filling the sky, they kind of parted directly up above my head and they rolled back either direction, I would say, into the corners of the sky, leaving, leaving the sky directly above me wide open, crystal clear. And the sun began to go down. It began to get dark. And I walked deeper and deeper into this field. It was about chest high with hay. And at a certain point, I, without any control of my own, I fell onto my knees. And I still was looking into the sky. And I saw what looked like a star. And it began to get brighter. And it began to descend down towards me. And as it did so, the, the electric feeling, the intensity became stronger and stronger, kind of like what you would talk about in the scriptures is someone being uh, like translated, you know, or changed to where they can have a holy experience without being right. annihilated by it. I can't remember the term for that. Um, translated? Oh, my gosh. You just asked me at the wrong time. Translated is not it. It's uh transliterated i can't remember the word transfigured transfigured that's the word that's what i'm looking for it felt like i was being transfigured to have this experience and it was very intense i felt like my whole body was vibrating with a great intensity and um this star came down to where as it got closer and closer i realized that it wasn't a star at all it was actually a large man sitting on the throne and not far above my head, maybe somewhere 30 to 60 feet above my head was this man. And he, uh, he appeared to be maybe somewhere around 10, 11 feet tall. He was seated. He was on a golden throne and he admitted a great deal of light. And I remember it looked as though his skin was made of bronze and his hair was white and his eyes were very intense and had a great deal of light coming out of them. And he had a purple, deep purplish robe draped over his shoulders. And he held in his left hand a scepter about four or five feet tall. And he raised his right hand to me. And what I would now know is what would you call it? The, the token of Aaron the sign of Aaron and he raised his hand up and I could see the wound in his palm 
And then he opened his mouth and he began to speak. And it was, it was, uh, it was kind of like, like a great wind struck me, but it wasn't a wind. It was just an energy. It was very intense and it blew, it blew back my hair and it made tears come to my eyes. And I remember he only said one thing. He said, behold, the end speedily cometh and thou shalt not go with me for thou art an evil son. That's all he said. Hmm. So what did you, how did you take that? Well, at the time I couldn't, I was just so astounded by what was happening. Um, after he said this, he lowered his hand and the whole vision went in reverse. He went back up into the sky further and further away until he turned into a star again. And then the clouds came back together and the blowing wind stopped. And after a couple of minutes, it seemed like I was able to get back on my feet and I turned and you know, I was at a point where I was so shocked. I was beyond thought. I, there was nothing I could think about it. I was just astounded. And I turned and I walked back towards where my friends were sitting. And as I came back to my senses, I could see them standing on the porch and they were all just grabbing onto each other. And I couldn't hear them, but they were yelling to me and they were waving their arms. And when I got back to the porch, one of my friends grabbed me and he looked at my face and he, his face looked like sheer terror. And I remember the first thing I could hear my friend saying was, look at him, he's glowing. And I could feel my face just vibrating strongly. And I remember moving to the side to try to look in the window and all I could see was light coming out of my reflection. And the feeling lasted for quite a while, around an hour or so. And as soon as I could think rationally again, the first thing I thought was, I must have just lost my mind. That was all I could think. I must have just gone completely insane. Because I've never seen anything like this before. And why would I? You know, I mean, it, even, that's why I almost didn't want to even talk about it, because that's a pretty insane thing to see. And I remember the only thing I could do rational at that moment was one by one, pull those other friends that were there to the side of the house where they couldn't hear each other and interview them and see what they saw. And if they described the same thing to me, independent of the other having an opportunity to tell the other one about it, then maybe it was real. But otherwise, I must be crazy. So I pulled the first friend to the side of the house, far from the other one, and I said, what did you just see? Tell me in great detail. And he described everything up unto the star coming down. He did not see the man that I saw in the sky, but he saw everything else. So I took him back to where he had originally been on the porch, and I took the other one round to the same corner of the house, beyond the hearing and the sight of the other one. I said, what did you see? And he told me the exact same thing, except for, as the other one, he did not see the man. He saw everything up until that point. He saw the clouds come back together, and he was just blown away and terrified. And that gave me the feeling at the time that what I saw had indeed taken place outside of my own mind. 
that it wasn't a hallucination. It was an actual physical event that took place, but that they were kept from the full vision that I saw. But I could not shake the idea that even though I saw it and even though they saw a great deal of it, maybe it was some kind of collective psychosis. Um, you know, maybe I had temporarily gone crazy. Um, I did not assume that I was a prophet or that I had any kind of special message. More than anything, I was just terrified. Okay, so, I mean, you're obviously a seeker. You're having these experiences, and now this is one of the most powerful visions of your life. What meaning did you ascribe to it? Well, the only thing I could ascribe to it is that I must need to continue to keep seeking because what he said to me was, Behold, the end speedily cometh, and thou shalt not go with me, for thou art an evil son. So apparently... (laughs) Apparently I was damned by Christ himself or it didn't happen at all. And I had lost my mind. It was one of the two, but all I could do about it was continue to seek knowledge and try to become what the scriptures called, you know, sanctified or righteous. And so that's what I did. I kept studying. I didn't know, I didn't have any kind of further instruction about a right way or wrong way to go. All I could do is keep studying. And um, let's see here. So it was around that time. I remember I moved and I moved in with my dad back in the city. And um, it was around that time that I had just about finished my reading of the Bible. I was in the book of Revelation at this point and I was on my way through the house. I was now 16 years old, close to 17. Eh. I've been about middle of 16 years old. I was on my way out of the house to go into the backyard to read. And I felt impressed to turn on the television. At this point, I didn't really watch much television. I was, I was trying to sort out the truth, you know? So it was a strange feeling to feel like compelled to do this. I turned on the television and there was a commercial on about a video called the lamb of God from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I was struck by the way Christ was portrayed in that commercial. It resonated with me a little bit more. It was just so personal. And I don't know, it just struck me. And um, I made a note of it and decided that if my parents would give me permission that I would call. And then I noticed something very shocking as the commercial went off. The channel it was on. It was on MTV. I found out later when I finally met with the LDS missionaries that the LDS church doesn't advertise on MTV. (laughs) But I saw it on MTV, I'm sure. So I went outside. I continued. I think two or three days later, I finished the Bible and I got permission from my parents who were always very um, open minded to me to allow me to pursue my own course in life. I called. The missionaries came. And I studied with them for about a year. And their first visit, they told me the story of Joseph Smith. And I looked at them and said, yeah, I can believe that. And I told them what had happened to me. And they looked completely mortified. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think there's anything in the handbook about people having multiple glorious visions. 
can we excommunicate him before he even joins? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Um, but, you know, hearing Joseph Smith's story, I mean, it really struck with me. I remember – and they also taught me a really great concept that day that I could ask of God and receive for myself. And I had never really – I don't know. I'd never had that cross my mind. A lot of faiths don't really teach that direct revelation is something possible. Um, you know, people are encouraged to pray and ask for what they need and things like that, but not necessarily to ask that God reveal knowledge to them. So after they left, I prayed about Joseph Smith, and um, and I felt as though through the promptings of the Holy Ghost, not through any kind of vision or anything, but just you know the feeling that we associate that it that it was true. Um, but at this point, I wasn't quick to up and jump into any religion. So I studied for about a year, and um, at school, I found out from other kids that Mormons were considered one of the most dangerous cults that, that you could come in contact with. A lot of Southern Baptist people believe that Mormons are not Christians. Um, that it's a very, very dangerous cult. They gave me what's what many people call anti-Mormon literature. And that actually turned me on to Mormon fundamentalism before I even became a member. Okay, so let's talk about that. How does that happen? Because this is so unique. Normally, people start with the LDS Church and convert to fundamentalism, but you kind of do it backwards. I mean, you could argue that you saw the missionary tool as the Lamb of God, and that brought you to it. But talk to us about learning about more and more and more about Mormonism. Okay. So um, I studied the church for about a year, and during that time attended the local ward, and I was— I loved it. I loved everything about it. It was just a great experience. Um, as I studied more and more, you know, of course I got my hands on the book of Mormon and I read that and, uh, really, really loved the book of Mormon. But what really excited me was to me, the doctrines that made Mormonism unique, such as the three degrees of glory, um, uh, just the apostles and prophets and the foundation, just all the things that make Mormonism unique. They were found in the Bible. So that really made me feel good because the Bible was the book I was familiar with. And I read the Book of Mormon probably three times in my years as a Mormon, but I mostly taught people from the Bible. And I later learned to love the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. But to me, all of Mormonism was right there in the Bible. So when I was 17 years old, I joined the uh, the church and I was the only um, – the only Mormon in my family. I think there were probably four or five of us in our high school. I became friends with them as well. And they kind of in- introduced me to the culture of being Mormon. You know, we started hanging out with them a lot, going, you know, going to Wednesday night mutual. And it was really cool. I had this new group of friends and they were Georgia Mormons are really outgoing, great people. They're very missionary minded, but they're also very open minded because they understand that they're in the minority and they understand that a lot of them are converts, you know. So they were really opening, open and accepting. And um, I didn't go around talking about my experience, but I did share it with a couple people. And I wasn't treated differently because of it, you know. But uh, I like to tell people that Mormonism drastically altered my thinking. I had done a lot of LSD, but nothing shifted my perspective like LDS. <laughs> 
You and me both, my friend. Except for no LSD. <laughs> what you did a bunch of LSDs? No, no, no. Just oh. <laughs> I did a lot of LDS, if you will. So. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. So so, how did you end up in Utah? Um. Well, here before that, you asked about how Mormon fundamentalism came about. So. I'm just going to kind of read what I wrote here for a little bit. And you can stop me at any point you want just because it gets really complicated. Um, so at this point, I believed in personal revelation and I became very given to study, fasting and prayer. I spent a lot of time with the missionaries. Um, at one point, I got in trouble at school because I gave away 80 copies of the Book of Mormon on a single day at school. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they didn't really like that. Um, I got How called did you in the get 80 office. copies of the Book of Mormon, I wonder? What's that? How did you come up with 80 copies? Oh, the missionaries would give me as many as I needed. They had stacks of them in their apartment, just tons of them. And I was called as a ward missionary, so I went out on exchanges or splits with the missionaries three to four nights a week. So did you get baptized first, or you were just sort of doing this as a volunteer? No, I, no, I got baptized. By this point, I was a member of the church. Um, I got baptized and then I became, uh, I got my first calling as a ward missionary and I don't remember how long, but just a couple months after joining the church, um, I was made an elder and they let me, uh, um, a lot of times we, we had all different, we didn't have a lot of deacons and teachers and things like that. So, um, I got to help with the sacrament too, which was a great experience. I got to help give blessings um, I got to baptize, uh, new members and I started going to the temple for baptisms of the dead. So it was, I really got immersed quickly. Um, let's see, I got, I got, uh, I had the opportunity to speak in church frequently. We had a full ward in this area and there were, a, there was a pretty healthy sized ward. I think we had around looking back, I'd say we probably had three or 300, 350 active members in the ward. So there was quite a few in the area. Um, so things got really interesting when um, when people started asking me about if I wanted to serve a mission. And of course, the answer to that was absolutely. And so I uh, was invited to attend temple preparation classes by my bishop. And I started going to those and I thoroughly enjoyed them. But around the same time, I also got invited to attend these special Sunday school classes. There was a member of our local stake presidency who was having these invitation-only study groups on Sunday evenings at his house. And there was me, the young man who baptized me, another young couple that was like the young men's president and his wife – and then one of our stake presidency members and his wife. And at these classes, we studied the Adam-God Doctrine, United Order. We read the Journal of Discourses. We studied plural marriage and all of the deeper mysteries of the gospel. At this point, I'd only been a member for about six months. Okay. Um, so, so you were just you just dove in uh, feet first. And you were ready for this. So you're studying, you do what a lot of people do coming to fundamentalism is you're thirsty for deeper truths. Mm -hmm. And yep. so what do you, what do you find? Well, I mean, those doctrines to me, 
it's what I began to call real Mormonism. Um, I didn't call it Mormon fundamentalism. I called it real Mormonism. I didn't know the term Mormon fundamentalism at that point. Um, I began to, to very, very devoutly uh, seek out knowledge about eternal progression. And I became very interested in the doctrine, doctrine of calling an election made sure. Um, um, I, the song, If You Could Hide a Kolob, became my favorite hymn. <laughs> And I got really into Mormon doctrine. Um, and it was great because at this class, I mean, like I said, there was just a handful of us, but anything, there was no, nothing off limits. We would, we would discuss everything. And, uh, me and the young man who had baptized me were the only two that had not received the endowment yet, but we were scheduled to at that point. Um, I put in my mission papers and got called on a mission. And I was extremely excited about that. And I got called to the Utah Ogden mission. So a lot of people kind of laughed and were like, oh, well, have fun on vacation. But I knew that this would be a great opportunity because if I could go to Utah, I could get my hands on early Mormon documents and books and really learn Mormonism. So I was excited. Before I left on my mission, I had another very, very interesting experience, and I dug up some old paperwork for this one because I've mentioned it to you before. I went in and I got my patriarchal blessing, and it's a little different. Do you want to talk about it? Sure. I'd love to. Um, so I have it here. Um, it is – oh, there's a baby crying outside. Um, there is – let's see, one, two. There are – Three full pages to it. I'll just share a couple of little points that I thought was really, really interesting. Oh, here we go. You will have times when you will see some of the seemingly elect fall by the wayside and demean the prophets of God. Satan will try to take hold of your testimony to take it from you. I bless you at those times to defend the prophet, defend the apostles, and those who have been called in the great positions. As you do so... You will have great influence upon many people who would have fallen if not for your efforts. And I remember right after this, the patriarch stopped for a while. And then he got really kind of solemn and he dove into this next part. He said, you fought many battles with Satan and his followers. They know you. They are real. They desire you not because they love you, but because they hate you and want you to be miserable like unto them. I bless you with the gift of discernment, that you can discern them, that you will not be led astray. I bless you with power over Satan. Let's see, it goes on for a while. Um, the battle will continue, for he knows your your potential. He knows the influence you will have upon countless num numbers of people. You have been blessed with many gifts, talents, and abilities. You have the gift to express yourself, the gift to expound the scriptures, the gift to teach, the gift of leadership. You will be called to do all these things in the Heavenly Father's kingdom. Uh, you will be looked upon for guidance when calamities are going on. You will be a source of leadership. You will sit in the councils of the church. I bless you with the gift of wisdom to listen to the Holy Ghost. You will have the opportunity to strengthen families and bring back those who have fallen by the wayside. You will call, be called as a missionary. Uh, da, da, da. Where's it at here? The part where it got really strange. Um, you know, your normal thing about you'll go to the temple and all that. Here we are. There are many eyes upon you. There are many who watch you. You will be known by many people. 
they will speak of you as they did the prophet Joseph Smith. Good by those who embrace light and evil by those who wage darkness. Satan will wage a war against you. Always stay in the mainstream of the church. Well, that's interesting. Yep. The veil will be thin. You will have communication. Small and large miracles will happen. Uh, you will be able to seek uh, seek them out and find them. Uh, let's see. You have been blessed with the gift of intellect, and you will be led by the Holy Ghost into your occupation. Again, always stay in the mainstream of the church. Uh, let's see if there was anything else. I bless you that you will be able to survive the return of the Savior and abide in his presence. You will, you can abide that day. You will be in his presence and feel the great love and knowledge he has for you. He knows you personally. He knows your mind, heart, and soul. Um, at the appropriate time, you will enter into your exaltation. You will dwell with your heavenly father throughout all of the eternities. Um, I think that was all the parts that are a little interesting, but okay, so now, yeah, it was really, as someone, really neat experience. As someone who has had this vision talking about being a wicked son and feeling like you went to hell, and now it's talking a lot about Satan, how are you tying all these threads together? Uh, by this point, you know, it said things like, you know, you'll be able to dwell in your father's kingdom. And the main thing I was studying at this point was calling an election made sure. And I had read that, you know, that was the the right of every Latter-day Saint. And so I was starting to kind of gain confidence. Um, I felt like maybe I could turn things around, you know, that maybe the vision I had and being told that I was not going to go with Christ might have been conditional. Um, I knew that at this time I felt like I had the spirit with me and um, I must have been doing the things that were at least somewhat pleasing to the Lord. So I, I began to to believe that that exaltation would be possible and move away from the fear. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of pursued my, my studies and uh, came on the mission to Utah and um, really enjoyed my mission, had a great experience, um, eventually was able to serve as a district leader and then as a zone leader. And then um, it was when I was serving as a zone leader that I had a very – a very interesting experience. Um, I served in Logan, Utah for a time and had the opportunity to attend the temple weekly. Uh, we could go on preparation day every week. And so we took advantage of that. And I made a lot of friends there. Um, we had a lot of awards in our area and I would meet with some of the members in the celestial room and we would discuss things quietly. <laughs> and uh, I really developed a love for attending the temple and I uh, would spend a lot of time, you know, looking for the little intricate things that I could find there that would help me in my studies. And um, let's see, it was around, uh, let's see, mm. yeah, it was around that time that uh, I got transferred to Bountiful, you know, just above Salt Lake there. And when I was in Bountiful, I found uh, an old Mormon bookstore and I was able to um, – we didn't really need our allotment very much because there were so many members of the church that were kind and took care of us with food and things like that. So I would often spend my allotment on collecting early Mormon literature and um, 
one of the one of the things I found that I really enjoyed was uh, a late 1800s uh, original uh, copy of the teachings of John Taylor. And that kind of became my new scripture. I would often be seen carrying it around. Anytime that I wasn't proselyting, I would be reading from that. Um, it had that real Mormonism in it that I was talking about. Did you have anyone around you saying, you know what, don't dive too deeply in this? Or did you recall your patriarchal blessing where it said mainstream? Did you, were you connecting any of those dots? No, because I didn't feel like I was studying anything that was out of the context of the church's position and teachings. I wasn't having any doubts about, you know, the prophet or lines of authority or anything like that. I considered myself LDS and that's all, you know, that was it. I didn't consider myself a Mormon fundamentalist at all. Um, Did you know I, about Mormon fundamentalists? Did you know about polygamy? Yo, of course. I, I knew about it, it and I believed in it, but I just accepted that it was something that had been suspended. Um, and I really was attracted to the idea of United Order, too. But I just had the position in my mind that, you know, that we as a culture and as a people were probably not prepared and that these things would maybe be instituted again one day by you know, the one mighty and strong or the Lord himself. I wasn't very concerned about it, uh, but I did believe in those things. Okay, so uh, it's all tying together like it does for so many people who go through this. It's it's all it's not inconsistent. Rather, it's very consistent. Yeah, I didn't have any concerns at all. Um, you know, nothing, nothing weird was going on. And then I remember one day out doing our missionary work and we knocked on a door and uh, a man came to the door and he was kind of dismissive. But uh, somehow I got him talking about Mormon doctrine and um, we had a little bit of a conversation and I remembered his last name and um, somehow I don't remember how I came to know it, but he was one of the Kingstons. He was part of the Davis County Co-op. And um, we had a little bit of a discussion and he enjoyed talking with me. So I went back one other time. And after that, it just seemed like I must have been in a neighborhood where there were a lot of Kingstons because I met more of them. And I met a man who was practicing plural marriage uh, in the Kingston group. And he gave me a copy of the Truth magazine. And uh, I read it and I enjoyed it. But it didn't it didn't really shake my my faith in the organization of the LDS church. But my mission companion uh, did report it to the president of our mission, and he suggested I give the book back and and just not read it anymore, which I thought was curious, but I didn't really have a problem with that. Um, but I did find myself in an interesting position because at this point we had 26 wards in our area, and the common thing that would happen on a Sunday is I would be picked up at our apartment, and me and my companion would split off. So we could visit the max number of wards. And I got kind of in a place where I was speaking a lot in church. And there were some Sundays where I would speak in five or six wards. You know, I would just get up and talk. And um, I remember one of the times I was speaking, uh, one of the men sitting up on the pulpit with me, he stood up and he put his hand on my shoulder and he shook his head very slowly, no, at me. And I think I was talking about United Order at the time and was testifying that I knew it to be true. And Were you um, embarrassed or how did you take that? Uh, no, I was just kind of confused. And I remember thinking, I'm not saying anything that's out of line in the church. 
and I was quoting from my old teachings of John Taylor book. And I remember as I looked across the, the, uh, the ward and looked at the faces of the people, I could see a couple people really look like they were very intently listening to what I had to say. And it was around that time that I started getting invited to members' homes to have very deep doctrinal conversations. And I became friends with a, a man who was a sealer in the Salt Lake Temple. And we became very close friends. And I honestly, for a little while, was entertaining the idea that he might have been a resurrected being. And this guy, he just, he was t very different from anyone I ever knew. He was very calm and just very, very knowledgeable about the scriptures. And when I was around him, I had a very similar feeling that I had when I, when I had that vision. It was very electric to be around him. And there didn't seem to be anything he didn't know. And he was very intent that I, that I seek, you know, the experience of uh, the second comforter, calling an election made sure. He really opened my eyes to an upper level of doctrine that, that I had known of but didn't have access to read about. He would give me books. We'd sit down and talk. And it was also around that time that I met a man who was a member of the stake presidency in that area who we also studied the scriptures. And at one occasion, he, um, he, he told me he was going to let me know something that not many people knew about him. And he revealed to me that he was secretly practicing the principle of plural marriage. And he asked me if I had a testimony of it. And I did. And I told him I did. And then he invited his two daughters in the room and asked me and them to uh, prepare to be married. Right on the that spot? Not to be married at that time, but to prepare for it. And what did you say? Um, I was shocked and a little scared, but I believed in the principle. But I just had a problem because I didn't know. I knew that the church had suspended it, but I imagined that there were people still practicing it. And I was kind of starting to feel like, what harm would there be in practicing a higher principle if, if the Lord led you to it? And that's kind of what I thought might be taking place, but I wasn't sure. And then something happened that really, really brought my Mormon experience to a halt. This man told me that he believed that I could help him start a united order and that the church could be set in order and that I might be the one to assist him in that. And he asked if I'd ever heard of the one mighty and strong. And I told him I had read the doctrine. And he asked if, if I believed that there was a chance that that might be me. And I told him, absolutely not. I have never received any kind of revelation putting me in any state of authority over anyone else. He says, yeah, but you have seen the Lord. I said, well, I believe I might have seen the Lord. I don't know. He says, that's a lot more than a lot of people can say. And he revealed to me that there were already a number of people that I guess my story was kind of going around that believed that I was a prophet. And um, around that time, my mission president called me and told me to come to Ogden to the mission headquarters and meet with him um, after our, our next uh, mission conference with everyone there. And I went into an office and I noticed that we had a visitor that day and it was Elder L. Tom Perry of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And I went into a room with just my mission president and Elder Perry and my mission president went to the side and sat down and Elder Perry, he had already shook hands with all the missionaries, but he grabbed my hand 
and he looked me in the eyes and he didn't say anything. He just held my hand. And then he asked me one question. He said, are you a prophet or aren't you? And I told him again that I had never made any claims like that. And I, I didn't have any reason to believe I had any kind of authority above anyone. And I didn't feel like I had a special message or anything. And he smiled at me and he said, that's very good. And, um, I was really, I was just really shocked and didn't know what to think of it. And a couple, couple weeks later, um, I finished my mission. And by that point I was completely convinced that I should probably, if I ever encountered it again, practice the principle of plural marriage and maybe seek a united order. Now, or, Frank, let's back up with your experience <laughs> with Perry. Did you feel like you were called in because you were in trouble? Did you feel like they were impressed with you? What was the tone of the meeting? I feel like he was trying to discern what I was. Uh, he didn't really go into I mean, that's all he asked me was the one question. I, I honestly feel like if I would have said yes, which I, I didn't feel that I was a prophet. But if I would have said yes, I probably would have been excommunicated right on the spot. But I almost feel like because because I said that I, I didn't believe I was and I knew I had no special authority or anything like that, the look he gave me, he smiled, and it was kind of like a pat on the hand, like very good. You know, that's very good. I felt like I felt like I was going to be given more options to grow in the spirit. Um, that maybe callings in the church might be open to me, uh, special opportunities to learn certain things, maybe higher ordinances had a feeling of that. I didn't know that, but, um, but it was really shocking because I was like, Oh my God, these, these men that I hold to be prophets and apostles, they're, they're aware of me. And, you know, I don't know what I am. I don't know what I have to share with the world. You know, I'm open to doing whatever at this point that the Lord wanted me to do. But, I didn't know what that was just to keep growing in knowledge and, um, you know, trying to do the best I can. But by this point I was thoroughly convinced through my studies. I read the entire journal of discourses and I read everything I could get my hands on. And I believed in plural marriage. I believed in United order. Um, I had no intentions on leaving the church and joining another group. And I definitely didn't have any intentions of starting one. But I knew I was at a point where I was either going to have to act on what I believed or not. So my mission concluded and I went home and I stopped being Mormon. What do you mean you stopped being Mormon? I just was at a point that either I was going to follow through and practice plural marriage and united order and continue on in that path or I needed to just walk away from it all. And that's what I did. I walked away from it. At this point, my family was very concerned. I was kind of like a re religious zealot, you know, and my worldview was very limited. If it didn't involve Mormonism and the higher doctrines of the kingdom, I didn't care anything about it. And so I left. So how uh, did you walk away from that? How did you, how does one just walk away from that? Well, I mean, it was either walk away or, become a full-on fundamentalist at that point for me. And I just didn't feel capable. I didn't know if I wanted to cross that line. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, that makes sense. And but I I couldn't just be a normal member of the church anymore because my beliefs, you know, they just become fundamental. <laughs> I guess. Now you, I thought you had made a trip before all this happened down to Colorado City. No, I had never been there before. Um, I by this point I knew about the various fundamentalist groups, and I knew about the 1886 vision, which I which I believed in, but I didn't. I didn't know who had the authority and I didn't, I didn't pretend to know. Um, I had learned a lot about Colorado city, I guess getting into that. So I, I went back to Georgia. I quit going to church and I started kind of like looking at other, like other paths, you know, other ways of thinking because the only way I could describe it is it kind of felt like a bubble burst and I just didn't have a testimony anymore or anything. It wasn't earth shattering. I was just kind of like, huh, that's weird. How did that happen? How did I go from sure knowledge to not being sure? Now, you have to understand at the same time, the vision I had, I never fully accepted if it was reality or not. I didn't know if I had had a temporary lapse of sanity or what. But to me, it happened. And I guess it goes well with my name because I was just a doubting Thomas in the end, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I just uh, came back to Utah because I was in love with the state itself and the natural beauty. And when I got back, I um, I always enjoyed poetry. And I remembered reading a statement by the poet William Blake that said the path of excess would lead to the palace of wisdom. And I thought, well, why don't we try that out? So for about 10 years, I hitchhiked around the country and rode buses and I did literally every drug that crossed my path. And from some of them, I had pretty profound experiences. I would say equal to the vision I had of Christ. Um, I had my soul taken completely apart at the edge of the universe and put back together, uh, kind of like a reincarnation type experience. Um, I, I had a lot of strange, strange and beautiful experiences. And then I studied Tibetan Buddhism for a number of years. I read various books from different hidden schools throughout the, the East, you know, uh, uh, different occultic studies. I read the Satanic Bible. I, I read everything. I tried to tried to understand a very wide position on the spiritual experience. It eventually got to my point where I would consider myself a study a student of comparative religion. Um, and then I ended up coming through Southern Utah on one of my tours. And I remembered hearing that Colorado City was nearby. And I said, I'm going to go out there and see what the reality is. So I put on a long sleeve shirt because by this point I have tattoos and <laughs> I stand out a little bit in that respect, you know. And uh, I went out there and I walked through the town. And uh, I was approached by a man who asked me if I was lost. And I told him I wasn't and that I knew a great deal about the history of the movement. And he says, what do you know? And I start right from the beginning, 1886, John Taylor, you know, his vision, the lines of authority and the priesthood split. And I knew a lot about it. And uh, he was shocked and excited and gave me a tour of the town. And it was then that I realized the people of Colorado City were very friendly and uh, ended up putting on a concert there. And over the last two years, I've made tons of friends in the area. I've met people from the Kingston Group. I've met people from the AUB. I've met people from Centennial Park. I've actually been to church at Centennial Park once, strictly out of curiosity. 
And like I said, I've met Tibetan Buddhist. I've met a cultist. A couple weeks ago, in one week, I went to a polygamous church, a satanic group, and an Aleister Crowley occultist meeting all in the same week. Um, I wouldn't say I'm <laughs> seeking anything anymore. You might be I'm beating just seeking me at this point. What? You might be winning uh, for strangest religious experiences. I just think me there's, at this there's, point. Truth, there's truth in everything. And I think for us to narrow it to one way of perceiving things, it's just not a healthy way to be. Uh, a man in Centennial Park uh, said something to me really interesting. And I wish I could quote him, but I don't remember exactly how he worded it. He asked me if I was a Mormon anymore. And I said, no, I'm not. He says, why not? I said, well, I've gone from being a Baptist to a Mormon, to a Mormon fundamentalist, to a Buddhist, to a Satanist, to an occultist. And now I realize that there's great truth in all things. And he smiled at me. He says, you're the realest Mormon I've ever met. Oh, wow. <laughs> because he said in his mind that just the seeking of truth makes you a Mormon. And I'm not against Mormonism, but I don't anymore believe that it is the one, you know, the one true church or the one way to achieve, whether you want to call it enlightenment, exaltation, salvation, we see the same themes, you know, in a variety of religions and all people are kind of striving for the, for the same, uh, I don't know, the same spiritual experience. It just manifests itself in different ways. I kind of wrote down here at the end of my notes, as I began to, to understand the variety of religious experience and philosophical thought, I drew correlations. I began to consider that perhaps all that we experience is actually spiritual and I can see the archetypes, the symbols, and the greater truths all seem to run together. I studied the hidden teachings of various paths. I meditated. I devoured books of various faiths and philosophies. I also learned to love people for who they are. I came to value all the cultural cultures and philosophies beyond a perspective of right and wrong. Um, when people ask me what I do now on Sundays when I'm not traveling – I meet with a small group of people on top of Dixie Rock and St. George with a little group called Howl, the Holy Order of Wildlife. Um, people kept telling me on my travels that I should start a religion or a church, which is funny because maybe things would have gone that way with Mormonism. Who knows? And I would say, no, no, I'm not starting a religion. I'm not starting a church. And people kept saying, but you've learned a lot and you've experienced a lot. Why don't you share it with people? And on New Year's Eve of this year, I just kind of felt, you know what? They're right. I don't have to be a prophet. I don't have to be a holy messenger, uh, but I can share the things I've learned and the correlations, and that can be helpful to people. So I started how, and we meet up there and we talk, and um, and we meditate, and we do yoga, and we study all different types of philosophies. And I tell people, I'm not holy, I'm not enlightened, I'm not saved, I'm not exalted, but I've seen a great deal of beauty, and perhaps some of it has colored my soul just a little bit. And uh, I can sum up after all of this, all of this religious experience um, with the statement that goes like this. I'm constantly in awe of the great mystery which surrounds us. That's beautiful. What do you That's, what do you think that you're seeking now? I don't feel like I'm seeking anything. I feel the, the, the seeking of this great mystery which surrounds us um, I've learned that there's many names for God and many attributes and many experiences. Um, you know, there's the natives called it a great spirit. 
I know scientifically that there's an electricity that runs through all things that animates flesh and that gives consciousness to beings. And I think that we all have access to that. And all I want to do is be mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually healthy. And I don't claim to know anything. I will say before anything that I'm ignorant and I don't see any fault in that. Um, I've since come to believe that it's a very, it's a very proud thing to claim to know the mind of God. And that doesn't mean that you don't have the right to say that because I know how that feels too. When I was Mormon, I was absolutely sure that the church was the one true church upon the face of the earth. And I have nothing against anyone who feels that way. And you might be right. I simply don't know. I just have a healthy love for the mystery. I feel like my life is imbued with great spiritual beauty. Um, I'm very happy and nothing excites me more. I still read fundamentalist Mormon doctrine. I still occasionally pick up, you know, LDS official church literature and look at it. I listen to your podcast, but I also read quotes from the Dalai Lama, various Eastern teaching teachers, and also some people that are satanic, which they believe that we are our own gods. And once we free ourselves from the idea that someone is going to judge us when we die, then we can start living. I think there's value in all different philosophies. Do you believe anything in Mormonism anymore? Do you believe in the principle? The principle of plural marriage? Uh-huh. I believe that for some it can be a holy and exalting principle. Um, I, for some reason, I still have a great attraction to the united order and plural marriage. I think that you see plural marriage a lot in the animal kingdom. There are certain mammals that practice uh, you know, one male with a variety of females. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Um, it's kind of funny where I found myself now in life. Um, a lot of people that I know try to live in a way that's sustainable and healthy with the environment. And they try to study religion and philosophy. And a lot of the people that are around me now are wanting me to encourage and organize a community, which in a way is based in United Order principles. And I actually am preparing to buy land in Hildell for that exact purpose. But I don't have any intentions on telling people what to believe. Um, I want to encourage sustainable living, and I also want to encourage people to live spiritually. But it's not to me to determine how that, how that looks or how it takes shape. So it's kind of funny after all of my my path, it's quite likely that I'll end up living in Short Creek, leading a community. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so in, in a sense, you are a prophet, just not the Mormon kind. Well, and I don't I don't have any special message to tell anybody, I don't think. Um, and I don't have any desire to lead people. It's kind of just kind of come to this way. And I tell people that if we do get this land, which we hope to, and we're researching right now that everyone who lives there will have an equal seat and everything can be democratic, which as you've seen in your visits to short Creek, there's a great push for democracy right now. And a lot of the people that want to come live with us on this land North of short Creek, the reason they want to live there is they know it has a foundation in the United order 
and they feel like it's a place where people can come together and share. And I feel like within five to 10 years, simply off of what's already happening in Short Creek, it might be an example for the rest of this country in a way that people can live neighborly and, and share things a little bit more openly like people used to. Is there anything that I'm, I'm going to let you go and, and will you send me some music so we can play it at the end of this? Yeah, absolutely. I've got, I've got, uh, I've got a new CD out and I'll be embarking on a, uh, a one month long tour. Um, I leave May 12th. It starts in Kanab, Utah, and I'll be playing all the way to the Georgia coast and all the way back. I'll be on the road for a month. And any of your listeners can reach out to me on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, Tom Bennett, one man band. There's also Tom Bennett, one man band.com where you can read my whole bio of that spiritual experience I've been sharing. And I talk about a lot of these stories when I perform and also the things I've seen since then. All I do is travel. Um, I live a very minimalistic lifestyle. I've got one wife <laughs> right now. There might be others in the future. I don't know, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I go everywhere and I'm always interested to meet fascinating people. So get in touch. Okay. Well, is there anything else you want our listeners to know? No. Uh, thank you for having me. I get pretty long winded, so I'm sure you could edit out whatever you need to. And, uh, I enjoy the podcast. I've been looking forward to being on it for a long time. It was really nice to sit down and write out all of this. I've never done that before. So I think that'll be good for me. And, uh, and I know we're wrapping up, but I think some people will say, how do you, how do you square the idea of, you know, you're, you're now so conscious of everybody and I can hear listeners. So before I let you go, I'm going to ask you this hard question. How do you square okay. the idea of polygamy and maybe the unfairness for women? Well, sorry, ask me one more time. How do you square the idea, your new beliefs of, because you know, uh-huh. you're one of the most open-minded people I've ever met, uh, compassionate, kind, egalitarian. How do you square that with plural marriage? I don't think that any of those principles are necessary, necessarily contrary to plural marriage, but I think we also have to be very careful, no matter what we believe, to make sure that everyone is respected. Um, I honestly, it's my position just personally, that patriarchal systems are are antiquated. And I think that uh, we need to value what our women say just as much as anybody else and our children too, with how we have a principle that we do not indoctrinate children, but rather we learn from them. And I think, I think everyone just needs to be approached with respect. My wife is extremely intelligent and has a totally different outlook than myself. She actually identifies as a witch and has a great deal of knowledge about focusing the intent and the mind and knowing about healthy foods and herbs. And so there's much I can learn. I think if we don't feel that way, then we're the ones in ignorance. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate that. And I'll let people leave questions for you in the comments section. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. I look forward to continue to listening to the podcast. I listened to the the one about the one mighty and strong right before we went on. And I've listened to quite a few at this point. Yeah. And now tell them your name, your nickname you've come up with. Oh, we almost forgot. Didn't we? I'm so glad you brought it up. Listeners heed my words for I am the one who has been revealed that will come. Yes. I am the one mighty and wrong. That's right. We've got we've got Tom Bennett, one man band, one mighty and wrong on the podcast. So that's right. <laughs> 
don't follow him, but you can check him out. Uh, with his follow me, schedule. walk with me. <laughs> well, that's right. And uh, join, uh, you've got your commune. Are you calling it a commune? Can we call it a commune? It's uh, it's an intentional community. It's, uh, it's how people, I guess they can find that on Facebook if they want to see what the principles that we believe in are. It's how Holy Order of Wildlife. There's a Facebook page for it. Um, yeah, it's just a group of people that are like-minded we want to live sustainably, and uh, yeah, we got people from all different walks of life, people from Colorado City, people that have lived in communes before, me, a variety of people that come and go, Native Americans, all kinds of people. Great. Well, thanks, Tom, and we'll we'll link to it, and uh, now we're going to leave listeners with some of your music. What song do you want us to hear? I'm going to send you a link to a song off my new album. It'll be perfect for this end of the show. It's called Show Me the Exit Sign. Great way to end it. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good one. Lord, I was born at 
Show me the exit sign. 